One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jeffrey Yang, author of the poetry collection Line and Light. It's not just about trying to write what is there, but trying to take away what isn't there in order to, to, to find what the poem is about, really, that you're trying to write. We'll be back with Jeffrey Yang after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, 
Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Jeffrey Young, the author of four poetry collections, including Hey Marfa, winner of the Southwest Book Award, and An Aquarium, winner of the Penn Joyce Osterve Award. He is the translator of Lou Zaubo's June 4th Elegies. His new collection is called Line and Light, which track light and energy through art, myth, and history. The poems in the collection ask questions like, what vitality binds the universe? Or, am I geography? Line and Light begins with one long poem that explores the ancient Malay kingdom of Lankasuka, a legendary nexus of creativity, commerce, and spiritual life that was threatened over time by violence, climate, and environmental degradation. Yang's collection includes many poems inspired by art, memory, and the natural world. We began the discussion with me asking Jeffrey Yang this question. Your collection, Line and Light, is... You know, when you write a lot of poems and then you want to put it in a collection, you're you're kind of looking for some organizing themes. There's five yeah, sections five. in this book. And the first one is a very long poem. And I would say just on the very surface, some of the things I notice that interest you, and then we'll go kind of deeper into, into what you sure. actually wrote. You know, I saw a lot about things that are carved like carvings into wood, what that means, a sense of vastness, but also alongside this idea of vessels. So things that hold, uh, I thought I saw many references to poetry, emptiness and fire and birds and form and formlessness and that interplay. There's a lot of Buddhist ideas next to, um, juxtaposed I guess with with grasping when you hear me say that list does it sound like I I read the poetry book that you wrote and what are your comments about that (laughs) um yeah for sure I think you've touched on a lot of the themes and things especially that first long poem uh Langasuka which comes out of the the melee shadow, shadow play, uh, which you know is so rooted in, 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 in it's a spiritual art, you know, uh, as as I think of really poetry in many ways too. Yeah, you mentioned that there was five um, sections, and that uh, you know is also a deliberate. I'm, I, I was trying to figure out how to uh, organize the book, and it's always nice when it finally clicks into a kind of complete structure. I, I love that moment too. Uh, whether it's a single poem or a sequence of poems, when you, when I finally realize how the structure is going to be, it's it's uh, it takes a lot to figure that out sometimes. But with the book, the five, I mean, I, I wanted. There's also a lot of stars. There's certain uh, uh, or Im- images of stars come in here and there. Not 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 as much as other things, but but so the five sections were kind of like uh, thinking about. Uh, in my mind, the five points of a star in a way and, 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 and how it kind of uh, conformed this book and, and as a source of light, you know. Um, but um, a lot of the themes that you mentioned uh, in your list come out of that first section, but then also relate to the rest of the book too, I think, is, as well, like especially the sequence um, 
go home, go home, go home, no home. And that that one, if you look at or if readers, you know, look at it, you'll see that there are poems written with this artist, uh, Kazumi Tanaka and her and the images she made with, with tea ink. And a lot of uh, the kind of ideas of form and formlessness and and uh, come into that poem too. But yeah, in the first section, I mean, there's, especially with the Tao Te Ching, that text is very important to the first section. And I've, I've loved that text for so long. And I knew I wanted to do something with it at some point directly. And I just didn't know what. And it, it just kind of, again, it was that moment of like, oh, this, I think this is what I want to do, uh, it is interweave this translated lines and things from the Tao Te Ching into this sequence of poems about the shadow play. I don't know if it works, but, <laughs> but it all kind of, it all, it all kind of made sense to me like doing it. Yeah. Let's talk about the first poem. It's almost, it, to me, it's very long. It's, it's based on um, this idea that you, that you mentioned this ancient Malay kingdom Lanka Suka, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about what it is, and then let's let's talk about the poem. It's it's in segments that are numbered. It's in some way it's um, it reminded me of a ballad. Um, in certain ways, you begin with saying, um, "I open my eyes to forget. I close my eyes to remember," and so I felt like the poem in general in this remembering was like bringing someone back to this this actual dream state of um that's almost primal in in their being um so tell me a little bit about this poem especially for for listeners who might not have read it yet yeah um no thanks for all those comments yeah it's it's a poem it it took a long time to write this poem i I started in 2012 um after a visit, uh, being invited to Kuala Lumpur um, to, to do some events there. And I met my hosts, Ed and Koo and Pauline Fan. Um, they run this organization called Pusaka, which is seeking to preserve the traditions of the shadow play there, wine cooler. And I'd always known about shadow puppetry through um, the Chinese culture, which, you know, uh, uh, just as a child and, and different things. Um, but it was amazing to see how um, vibrant and vital it uh, it was in Malaysia uh, there and what they were doing with it. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to write anything about that, but I just it just kept a lot of things about that trip and thinking about what we were talking about and what we were and then what I subsequently started to read. Um, so a, a lot of that comes into the poem. And so, like you said, it's made up of numbered, it's a numbered sequence of 63 sections. And it kind of moves around the idea of this kingdom called Langasuka, which is thought to have existed at some point. And there's evidence of it existing and there's textual references to its existence. But because you know, a lot of these cultures and civilizations that didn't have, say, a written record or a lot of their architecture or their, like you're talking about carvings, their art is made out of these very, these materials that 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 disintegrate, you know, like wood, you know, or, you know, even paper and things. And so how, how can a lot of that be preserved? So the evidence that is, <clears throat> that you see of this, kingdom is through what persists and uh, in the art, in the poetry, in the wood carving, in the shadow play. And so I was struck by that idea of this kingdom and how it continues on to, to be, to kind of live, live on through, you know, these master engravers, through these dalangs, which are the, the puppet masters, and through a long tradition of, of art that, you know, changes over time. And so I wanted to see if I could write something. I don't know. It, it wasn't even that deliberate. It was just kind of coming into, into this, this world and trying to be open to it and seeing what there was. And, it, you know, it originally the, the poem was much, much sh- uh, shorter. It was much shorter and it was, there was no numbers. It was just separated by little 
breaks and then it just kept getting bigger and and i let it sit for a little bit you know and come back to and say oh i'm i'm going to separate this into first different sections and then i, th I thought no it, how about these numbered sections and so it kind of it kind of kept growing until it stopped <laughs> Well, what about that idea of something primal of the beginning when you, you know, you open your eyes to forget and you close your eyes to remember it, it, yeah. it as you enter the poem with those lines, it felt like to me, like going back in time to something that is more maybe universal among humans and almost I mean, maybe relates in some way to Young's collective unconscious, but having to do mm -hmm. with our shared human experience. Those two lines for me are still a little bit mysterious <laughs> for me, but I knew they had to open the poem. You know, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I think if you want to relate it to Young and, and these kinds of collective images and myths that we have, that we share among cultures and things. I mean, just the very visceral idea of everything that we're seeing right now, day to day with our eyes open, a lot of it you don't really want to see. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, as a way of like, uh, you know, it's really, how do you look deeper into something when your eyes are closed, but you're actually looking deeper within into other things. And so it, it seemed to make sense when, when, uh, with this art form, this, this shadow play, which is so much about what is, uh, hidden and concealed and, 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 um, the music and, and just kind of this ritualistic thing that, that you're right. It goes back so, so long and has survived for so long and, and has changed. And, um, but but it's still important and it's still the the bright emanations of a civilization you know you know even though it's threatened by so many different things you know as as other things are yeah the publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season 2 of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. So some of the questions that that brought up are really about ourself. Who are we? You have a line in there, am I sanctuary? Which was one of my favorite lines in, in the whole book. And it reminded me of this movable, malleable self questioning unknowing but curious amidst feeling maybe undefined and also one with the surroundings at the same time so there's so many paradoxes in there when you're investigating who we are as humans yeah there's a lot of uh, especially in the beginning of the sequence as you know there's there's these poems or uh especially one poem where there are these series of questions that come up and um and and that does connect to this again this this kingdom langasuka like what what is it you know what what was it what is it now and, and so a lot of those questions of what i was trying to find through the research and through just talking to others about this yeah edin Koo wrote this uh, beautiful book uh i i mentioned in in, in, the, in the book about uh, melee wood carving and he he uh, he comes into one of the poems because he is kind of doing that, trying to figure that out too, and look more into what this what this kingdom is through wood carving, you know. And uh, you could find like where it roughly was located and where what come, but what comes out of it, you know. And so and so a lot of those questions were trying to in the poems what was was trying to 
to get a bigger, a larger sense of that. Uh, and and it does, and I think, you know, it connects, it does connect to so much uh, of, for me anyways, of of not just this one place that that was, but, but uh, with other ideas of how, you know, we continue to exist, you know, uh, in, in ways and what, what, what is lost, what do we carry on, you know, and what is important to us now and why, you know, these kinds of questions. Is there anything about wood carving that you think is similar or has a similar effect as an artist or someone observing the art to poetry? Yeah, I think there's, uh, I think it's a, it's a incredible kind of metaphor for poetry to, because I'm also interested in, in seal carving, which is, you know, like those, they call them Chinese chops, where you, uh, where artists would engrave, you know, their various names or um, a saying or something. And you see it on Chinese paintings, uh, the classical paintings, traditional paintings, landscape paintings, and even portraits and things. But it becomes so much part of, of the art as well. And a lot of like that carving, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, carving itself and sculpture uh, relating to sculpture is about negative space and how what is formed through, say, this seal of a stamp is, is what is either, you know, carved without or there's, you know, there's, there's different ways of, of carving it. And it's the same with, you know, this wood carving. I think in poetry, you're really trying to, um, it's not just about, you know, trying to write what is there, but trying to take away what isn't there in order to, to, to find uh, what the poem is, is, is about really that you're trying to write. And so, and that again, relates a lot to the Tao Te Ching and this uh, idea of emptiness and something ineffable, which is so connected to, I think, traditional Chinese poetry itself, like this kind of trying to, to, to write the ineffable in, in a way. So yeah, I love that seeing, you know, these carvings and, and it, to me, it's, it's so much about poetry you know <laughs> you know the lines the curves and and what comes into shape as you continually kind of like work on work on a poem it's interesting that you you talk about the negative space because a concept that came up not just in this poem I felt in some ways it was one of the themes throughout the book was this idea of expansion and compression and specifically with the natural world and the natural order of things that nature on its own can eliminate excess and can compensate for deficiency. So nature can find this harmony. It can find this sort of status quo and sense of equilibrium on its own but that we as humans tend to go towards the excess that we, we can't find that and that we need nature. We need to live in nature and bring out that nature in us to find that kind of sweet spot where everything is, is in balance. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, all of these things you're saying, <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> definitely things I agree with and, and, and things that I, I think about and come into this book. The more that I kind of continue on with poetry, you know, as as reading it as an editor, right, and writing it, the more it almost seems like everything poetry and and art is 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 coming out of you know our relationship to nature and what nature you know is and what nature has changed for us over over time and what it means to us. But but. Um, you know, there is this kind of like harmony in nature, but there's also, it's it's more about kind of also about species trying to survive, you know, like in their particular environments and habitats and that relationship they build with each other. It's so complex and it's and it's so interconnected with, with everything that, like you say, like with human involvement in these things, it, it's just, you know, and we're seeing, we're seeing this to the extreme today and we're trying to, to fix that in, in different ways with climate change and things like that. But I think it's hard to find with, with how we're living right now uh, and what, you know, this just gets into other questions of just how we're, 
uh, living as a community and a society and stuff. It's so hard to to um, find that balance, I think. And so at least I try. We could try and find it in our art, <laughs> you know, with uh, with trying to figure out uh, or, or feel the way that things can be, like sometimes, you know, and uh, trying to write these things. You seem very influenced by art. And I wanted to ask you about that. One of these sections, your poems are based on some tea leaf paintings that a friend of yours made that you write a poem for each. But first, I want to ask you overall, how do visual arts in in specific influence you as as a human and as a writer? They, They seem to move you towards the page. I think it's one other entry point for poetry uh, as a poet in language. Both the visual arts and music have have been a huge influence for me. I mean, I, I think for for so many you know writers, I think, but with the image and in in visual arts and trying to think about the image in poetry, I think it's a very rich and connection to explore with it. And there's a long you know many poets have written about, you know, the visual arts or particular pieces of art or artworks and stuff. But there's a few sequences or there's a few poems in here that come directly out of um, um, the visual arts. You mentioned the one with the uh, the Teague drawings. And there's also like the title poem comes out of this artist, Melissa McGill, um, and her installation that she made on um a little island in the Hudson River, which is about 15 minutes from us. And that's where the title poem directly came out of because she invited me to kind of uh, a few people to kind of respond to it. And, and usually, you know, it's I don't like to do that, actually. <laughs> I, I just kind of prefer just to have the, the artwork speak for itself. But sometimes, it, you know, it's maybe it's a little bit... Um, there's a little bit of irony there because there are these few things, but sometimes I just, if it, I just have, if I moved to, to do it, then it, it's kind of listening to that. Cause, um, with the art installation piece that Melissa, uh, made that there's these poles she set at different points on the Island and the Island itself has, you know, a, a, a rich and interesting history. And on each island, she, she, or each uh, pole, she put um, this light on top of it that uh, would come on, I think, automatically, maybe like uh, an hour. I can't remember exactly before dusk and through the night. And so it would make this kind of constellation. She, her, her artwork was called Constellation. And so I was, and so in thinking about that, you know, for me, it really broke down for me like the essence of what poetry is for me. Poetry being composed of lines, all the various lines that um, that run through so many different disciplines, from math to to biology and everything. And then light, you know, light as uh, light being energy and a source of change. And so, um, and so, I mean, that's just one example of how. Uh, this art installation kind of triggered these thoughts about uh, poetry for me. And so being able to write that's that poem. Um, then there's, and then the very last poem called Ancestors is connected to uh, a art installation as well. And, and that's made of wood. So it all kind of made sense for me because I it, the book opened up with a lot of references to wood carving in uh, the Malay culture, and then I saw these this installation by Yun Suk Nam in in Korea, and it was and it just kind of fit with all, so many of the themes that I was trying to deal with and write about in this book. Yeah, I don't know something. Just I think it's our response to art is so um, different for each person, uh, um, which is and uh, reader as readers too. And but it's but when something kind of triggers that, like oh, what you know certain lines come up and, and I start to explore those things and, and, and see where it goes. This visual element and, and all these arts that influenced or inspired you to write or that you were just responding to in your writing, how that might influence the shape of your poems? Because I noticed, especially as we got deeper in the book toward the end, mm-hmm. your poems have shapes especially coral for kamau 
is shaped almost like if you if you stand back, it's maybe like a like a bending river. Um, yeah. Some of them are very square. So I'm wondering about how that, you know, how does shape come into an interface with your ideas and what you want to write? I think the shape of a poem is like you're talking about the physical shape in these in these various poems. There's some even that are uh, perfect squares, like you mentioned. Um, it comes. It, it, it's not something that um, that comes that I think I'm going to do right immediately. Like to start, it comes out or I tr- as part of the process as as it as it's being written for me, and it becomes part very much part of the structure and form of a poem and finding that that shape. And so, like the first sequence uh, of poems are pretty much you know usual flush left with stanza breaks and, and different things. And, and that all seemed to make sense for, for that whole sequence with the, with the choral for Kamal poem that you mentioned that uh, it, it was written for Kamal Brathwaite, the, the great Barbadian poet. It was it, the shape of that poem as I was writing it um, was so much about being underwater and under, under the ocean and the swaying of kind of like coral and kelp and different things like that. Uh, and so it, it kind of made sense to do that, and it, and it connected so much to me with to, to Kamal's spirit, you know, uh, you know his some of his words come into the poem too, and then so and then some of the the, the kind of square poems, like there was one, or even that whole sequence written for written in connection to the teeing drawings are these kind of rectangular field poems with uh, with spaces. I mean that that has a lot connected to the shape of the art itself, which was a very deliberate 10 inch by 10 inch uh, um, drawing. Also, like years ago, I started to translate classical Chinese poetry in this kind of field shape with spaces in between. And it, it also connected again to uh, to what I was talking about, seals and chops and the spaces within that. And so it, that's, I kind of adapted to these poems too. And so, I don't know, yeah, it took it took some time to to find those or it often takes time to find those structures but once it it connects it's it's that's a great feeling for me i mean to uh to feel like this is how it should be you know in my mind and and stuff because sometimes it doesn't work that way you just have to throw it away (laughs) do you write them in that shape or do you shape them later so yeah, I'm curious if you end up writing things you have to take out just because they don't fit the shape, even if you like what you wrote. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it's it's off. It's more like uh, I'm starting to write something, say like uh, um, in that field rectangular and and shape, and 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 it starts out usually as just lines, you know, being entered and stuff and then slowly as i as i kind of figure out more of if this is going to be one poem or maybe it's going to be you know a sequence of poems or something like that once i hit that structure i'm writing it in the structure the fortunate thing about that particular rectangular structure uh with the t drawings is that it's actually very it's very elastic uh, structure and so it allows for a lot so so later on even if I thought I was finished with one of those poems and I and I thought oh I actually want to add a little bit more to it it'll, it'll let me do that you know it, I didn't have to destroy everything in order to do that because of the spacing that always isn't the case you know part of I think writing can be that idea of non-attachment because you have to sometimes throw away things even you like if they don't fit into the poem and that idea of Buddhism is also enmeshed in all of these works. Um, you talk a lot about that to be like nothing enables vastness, that mm-hmm. um, in the letting go or fulfillment in the stillness or just really questioning like who you are. I just wanted to ask a little bit about that, about what is your relationship to Buddhism? I know you were mentioning, you know, some arts in the in the I Ching. What's your reaction when I say that? It's one of those things where I kind of wish I could call myself a Buddhist. <laughs> but, 
haven't, I haven't really reached that enlightenment state yet. <laughs> you know, that's probably uh, the worst thing to say to, to anyone who's a Buddhist or, or who is a teacher of Buddhism. There's so much tradition and culture of Buddhism and, and how specific areas and how it's spread. I mean, I'm totally fascinated by that history and by the philosophy uh, as, as well. And, and, and I think it overlaps with so much uh, too, uh, especially if you're looking at ancient Chinese history too. You're, you're looking at uh, you know Taoism, Confucianism, uh, you're, and uh, uh, Buddhism, and these things that overlap and intertwine, and and things, and it and it makes for an interesting mix at various points in history, in time, and and for what people are writing and 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 the art that comes out of that. You know, there's so much that is just it just leaves you awestruck with when you're what you're seeing in some of these sculptures or or the art um and 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 the philosophy itself i think it's uh it, I, I yeah i mean it's for, for me like that what is i guess uh, the Buddhist aspects of philosophy and stuff come out through in the context of um, whatever is being written about in 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 the poem. And so, in the first sequence, you know, coming out of the shadow play and that art form, and then in the teeing drawings and 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 things, there is um, just that ephemerality of using tea ink as as the medium, and it actually ended up surprising the artist that it didn't fade like she thought it would it kind of like uh, deepened a little bit but as long as you were, you took care to cover it you know but 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 again that kind of transitoriness you know and like you talk about detachment i mean i think it's yeah a lot of that kind of um i connect with deeply too and think about a lot yeah so you were mentioning these tea drawings and you had a friend who has these beautiful drawings from tea leaves and you include them in the book. And it sounds like she, they don't come out very often. They're covered. They're um, very preserved very well. But as you said, they were drawn in, in, in this tea ink. And when she took them out, they were preserved better. Or in some cases, the color was richer than when she started. And what you did with each is you wrote, you show the, the picture and pictures are a very important part of this collection. There's a lot of them in there. But you, in this section, you show the picture, you write the poem. The poem is juxtaposed on the opposite side with its translation in Japanese. And then also in each poem, you have a nod to the next picture. So the last lines are in the very end of the poem. You work in the next poem. So we turn the page and we see that next picture. And it goes on from there. Just wanted to ask if you can talk about the process of writing these and and your idea to do it. Yeah, I mean, that was, again, like trying to figure out the structure. You know, I had visited Kazumi's, uh, Tanaka's studio, and we, she was just showing me some of her sculptures and some of the things she had. She actually works a lot with wood as well, uh, with little carvings and things. And then she showed me these teeing drawings that were very personal for her. She grew up in Osaka and, you know, has been in New York now for a while, but but her mother and her connections are very, still very deep in Osaka and her mother was ill. And so I, I, I don't know, I can't, I, I'm actually not sure if she started to, to draw these things because her mother was ill or not at the time, but she definitely was thinking a lot about her childhood and growing up in Osaka and some of those images are all about that. And so when I saw that, I was really moved by the whole sequence of images. And I started to think about lines that were already kind of coming to me about some of the images. And and then we started to talk more and she, and she said she would be happy if I would write something in connection to the images. And so I didn't know that they were all going to to do, to, to be like this again, it, it, until I started to, to actually write some of the poems and so I, some of them i started to write or you know come directly out of each image and so i was i was playing around with that and and then it it was great because um you know there's this tradition of album painting uh in in a chinese tradition of album painting that that i found connected to kazumi's images and then this the tradition of uh japanese poetry renga 
um, where there are, it's, it's I'm totally simplifying this, but there's um, uh, it, it's basically you know these connecting images, seasons, flowers, um, rhymes, you know, throughout the poem that connect to things and link up. It's like a linked, and it's a, it's often a, a communally written, or can be communally written thing, and and so once I figured out like, oh, I can connect this thing, uh, this series of images that was finished um, through language by making it at a kind of renga. And so, like you said, each poem, the end of it will connect to the next image and the very last one will go back to the beginning. Um, the Japanese translations came later uh, and it, it kind of just um, really completed the cycle of the of the of the whole project for us and and you know because so much of, of the painting those drawings uh and the poems are looking for a way home in a way you know and and what that means yeah one of the things you write because you have a note before it and you you're talking about these chinese albums and you're talking about Chitao's album returning home which you just mentioned and Uh one of the things you write in there is that the brush stroke as the origin of all phenomena which is like emergence which made me think that your poetry and this art was merging that there's so much braiding together of things and I just thought that was a really beautiful concept about the brushstroke as the origin of all phenomena oh thanks yeah I didn't say that right that's that's a quote <laughs> yeah yeah um but no it's, yeah exactly Chital was was saying melding it into a line but 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 no I I you know and when you when you see some of these kind of like Buddhist Chan paintings or you know some of these ones where all it is is like the stroke of the brush or you know getting into kind of um uh zen and and just that circle of the brush you know it's it's uh you could see um that concept being played out like so you know strongly (laughs) and powerfully and and um but yeah i think um there, there's, there's a lot written about that in, in Chinese painting and stuff, just the, the, the you know, and you, you were, we were talking again about nature and stuff. I mean, so much of, of, of when you're learning uh, Chinese calligraphy or Chinese painting, you, there's all of these comparisons to, to nature, you know, to, to these, in, in these kinds of, you know, traditional manuals, you know, what they're seeing or they're seeing like, or, or it could even be someone like, you know, uh, doing a sword dance and they're thinking of, oh, this is how the brush should be. <laughs> it's it's kind of great, like how, how these analogies and, and metaphors come, come, come out, you know, and, and um, inspire, you know, the, the brushwork. <laughs> Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, this is a poem by Sushir, uh, a Song Dynasty poet, and it, uh, this translation I, I found it in a uh, in the Poetry Society bookshop, Poetry Society bookshop in Scotland in Edinburgh when I was there uh, in college, and it was just a postcard of this uh, poem, and there was no indication of who the translator was, and I I tried to find out who this translator was, but nobody, they, they didn't know. And they, it wasn't on the, in the card or anything. So it's, um, it's, it's titled to the tune immortal by the river. And it goes, um, drinking at night on the old East slope, adrift or drowning in wine, then heading home at what I thought was midnight. The boys asleep, his snores, a distant murmur, nothing stirs to greet my knocking. Leaning on my stick in silence, I hear once more the river's song. I'll always remember those words of yours. Your life is not your own. Then when shall I give up my plans and pretensions? As dawn draws near, when the wind has dropped and the waves settled. A small boat might leave this place with all that's left of me, by river to the ocean. Is there anything you want to say about why you chose that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just a poem that has stayed with me for since, you know, I found it. It's also the translator took a lot of liberties, <laughs> you know, with it, you know, because since since that time, I looked at the original a number of times and just seeing what, what the journey. but there was, I don't know, just finding it and, 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 and um, something about the way it kind of drifts along and that line, your life is not your own. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, it's just, it's, it's something that, it's a poem that has stayed with me for, for many, many years, long before I started to translate, you know, Chinese poetry. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, um, this also was hard to find because so much, it's like everything, <laughs> like or so much of what I've written uh, changes um, a lot. And so I'll just read, I mean, I'll read some of this poem, Stones and Stars. This is this is the first block of stones and stars or stanzas. And it, it's in it's it's in four um, sections of 14 lines each. And it goes, there's a cemetery near my home that belongs to a state prison, inherited from the hospital for the criminally insane that the prison used to be. It lives quietly behind the local high school between the tennis courts and the new football field, hidden by tall pines and maples and other trees. A barrier gate with private property signs, piled dirt is easily skirted around the middle of the overgrown path, continuing on to the cemetery. The path runs along a chain link fence, arms emptied of wire, dividing a row of residential houses on the left and the cemetery on the right. The cemetery rests in an air of secrecy and seclusion as if it belongs somewhere else deep in the forest or in another era or dimension or trance, accident or afterthought, though it still happens to exist here in this time and place, a diurnal sphere of the latitude's changing seasons. Yeah, this is, it comes directly out of this cemetery that's, that is a hidden cemetery near where I live. And I, you know, for 15 years, I've, I've been kind of running through it or or visit walking it walking to it and and uh i never could figure out um i never knew how to write about it and um and it wasn't until like a friend of mine um was asking i can't remember the project he was doing but he asked if i would send him something and it was during covid you know i was taking walks to this place and and it, it just started out as like a few long, a little paragraph that I sent to him. And then, um, and then it came into these kind of like 14 line uh, blocks. And so I was, it was nice to, to, uh, again, this kind of structure came into being. Where do you write? Uh, mostly in my study. Um, uh, I live in Beacon in uh, New York and uh, we have like a detached shed uh, and um, that's mostly, yeah, where I work. <laughs> What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I like to hike and run and, and be outside. Uh, I also, you know, listen to music and I, I play uh, I play an instrument or two here and there to, to uh, get away. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, it depends on the poem, but for the most part, it's my editor, uh, Jeff Schatz at Grey Wolf. How have you dealt with rejection? That was kind of a big question. I wasn't sure, like, what, <laughs> were you thinking of something in particular, like rejection-wise, or, or, or? Mostly related to writing, but feel free to, to, to have it be universal. I think with writing, it's, uh, it, it's just focusing on the work, really, and, and listening to, I mean, I think it depends. Sometimes, you know, when someone writes a rejection or you, there, there is something they say about the work as well. And, and I, I appreciate those um, things that, that are said as well. But it's mostly just kind of uh, uh, focusing on the work, I think, and, and feeling that, that it's what you wanted, that what I wanted to kind of accomplish with, with the poem something like that but it's also knowing like if you're talking about like sending things out uh, to magazines and such i mean um i think once you realize that all of these magazines and you know publishers and things it's not just this uh, huge uh, amorphous institution <laughs> it's it's really one or two people who are kind of bound to what 
whatever kind of vision that, that this magazine is trying to do. And so it's so oftentimes it's 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 so, you know, it's it's you just kind of have to realize that sometimes these things uh, are only being looked at by, you know, one or two people. And, um, and, and so if you're kind of focusing on the work and thinking about that, you know, I think that's, that's what the important part for me about the writing is. Yeah. And, 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 and that, and part of that is, is what I'm, you know, what I'm reading, you know, too. What is your favorite word? That's another card question. I have a lot of favorite words, but one of them, uh, is this Chinese character, uh, Ling, and um, I wrote a poem about it. Um, it's kind of a sad poem, but in my book, Vanishing Line, called Elegy for Ling. But this this character Ling, um, which has many meanings, um, um, including like alert, being alert, or um, it also means spirit or soul. Um, um, someone departed, um, but the way it's written is that it's the character there's three components to it uh there's the character for rain at the top and then there's these three mouths in the middle that are just squares and they can be kind of like it's in chinese that that character is called uh, ko mouth uh, but it could also be like these little gates or or portals or something uh they look like and then on the very bottom is this uh old um character wu which is a reference itself to a lot of things, but uh, to a particular type of shaman uh, in in um, in ancient times, and so it's just such a, a beautiful, beautiful character and word, and it's part of people's names sometimes. And so, anyways, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and sharing. I'm so appreciative. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time too. If you like today's show with Jeffrey Yang, author of the poetry collection Line and Light, check out my interview with Yi Yun Li, author of the short story collection Gold Boy, Emerald Girl. We discussed her childhood in China and the role of stories, telling stories in her second language, and transforming her mind from scientific to artistic. Li just won the Penn Malamud Award for Short Stories. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Lawrence Jackson, No Violet Bulaweo, Zina Hashem Beck, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.